Introduction The kidneys are the primary regulator of fluid and electrolyte status in the body. They preserve equilibrium by conserving or excreting electrolytes and water. They also excrete waste products of metabolism, such as urea, creatinine, and organic acids. These dual functions are the primary means of maintaining the ionic, osmolar, and pH status of the body. In addition, the kidneys contribute to other bodily functions through the synthesis of erythropoietin, the production of vitamin D, and the regulation of blood pressure. Thus, the kidneys play a central role in the growth and development of children, placing them at risk when faced with anatomic or physiologic stressors to their function. Infants are particularly susceptible as their kidneys are less effective in filtering plasma, regulating electrolytes, and concentrating urine. Although the kidneys and urinary tract are separate systems, they are interrelated. Irregularities in one system may affect the other. These abnormalities may be congenital, anatomic, cellular, or genetic, or acquired, infectious, inflammatory, or traumatic. Renal dysplastic and cystic diseases. Renal dysplasia is a condition in which the renal parenchymal tissue does not form correctly throughout. Typically, both kidneys are affected. There may be areas of normal parenchyma interspersed with areas of fibrosis, immature development, or even other tissue, such as cartilage. Severity ranges from minimal to severe renal impairment, sometimes with the development of isolated cysts or hypoplasia of the kidney. The presence of renal dysplasia is associated with an increased risk of abnormal development elsewhere, particularly in the urinary collecting system, but also in conjunction with other syndromes. Differential diagnosis In renal agenesis, one or both kidneys fail to form. Bilateral renal agenesis is typically noted prenatally with marked oligohydramnios on ultrasound. This results in potter sequence, clubbed feet, cranial anomalies. Affected infants are stillborn or die shortly after birth due to associated pulmonary hypoplasia. Unilateral agenesis is usually an isolated defect but may be associated with other abnormalities. In multicystic dysplastic kidney, MDK, the most common renal cystic disease of childhood, the kidney consists of numerous non-communicating, fluid-filled cysts. Affected organs are non-functional, but the condition is virtually always unilateral. MDK is a common cause of abdominal mass in the newborn, exceeded only by hydronephrosis from ureteropelvic junction obstruction. Diagnosis is confirmed by postnatal ultrasound, non-communicating cysts, and renogram, demonstrates lack of function. Most cases undergo spontaneous involution. Follow-up imaging with renal ultrasound is necessary until involution or surgical removal. Nephrectomy is only recommended when the kidney changes in size or appearance, increased risk of Wilms tumor, when the patient is persistently hypertensive, experiences pain, or has recurrent infections of the involved side. Polycystic kidney disease is an inherited disorder that occurs in two forms, the autosomal recessive, ARPKD, and the autosomal dominant types, ADPKD. In the former, both kidneys appear enlarged but maintain their symmetric, reniform shape. The renal collecting tubules are dilated, producing small cysts which are visible only as increased echogenicity on ultrasound. The condition is usually discovered prenatally, with the advances in obstetric ultrasound, or during evaluation of a palpable renal mass in an infant. Similar dilation is found in the hepatic bile ducts, with varying degrees of periportal fibrosis. In general, the kidneys function poorly, and life expectancy is appreciably shortened. Severely affected infants may die within weeks without dialysis. Less affected infants suffer from hypertension and an eventual decline in renal function during childhood. The autosomal dominant form of polycystic kidney disease is usually not detected until adulthood, but may be diagnosed earlier on ultrasound for a positive family history, hypertension, or hematuria.
The cysts can be quite large and distort the normal shape of the kidney. Hypertension and renal insufficiency develop over time, but do not always follow typical courses even within family cohorts. Early intervention to treat hypertension or proteinuria is currently indicated, with transplant as a viable option when renal function diminishes. Clinical manifestations The most prominent defect with renal dysplasia is inability to concentrate the urine. Dysplasia of the renal tubules affects their ability to reabsorb fluids. Affected patients have an obligate amount of urine output which is unable to change based on fluid status. They may have frequent urination, difficulty in attaining urinary continence, and be particularly susceptible to dehydration if they are unable to maintain volume status through impaired intake, vomiting, or increased losses, diarrhea, of fluid. Additionally, these children are at risk for poor growth if they have increased losses of electrolytes, especially sodium, in their urine. Diagnostic evaluation The diagnosis is typically made by renal ultrasound, with the kidneys appearing more hyperechoic than normal. These patients often do not present with hypertension, but the diagnosis is sometimes stumbled upon during an evaluation for elevated blood pressure if the serum creatinine is elevated. Urine-specific gravity is often low, but the urine sodium may be elevated in some patients. Treatment Treatment for the specific disorders is discussed under differential diagnosis above. Ureteropelvic junction obstruction Ureteropelvic junction obstruction, UPJO, is the most common cause of hydronephrosis in childhood. Etiologies of primary UPJO include intrinsic narrowing at the junction of the renal pelvis and ureter or angulation of the ureter from a crossing renal vessel. Secondary UPJO can result from scarring at the ureteropelvic junction, angulation secondary to massive ureteral dilation, as seen with high-grade vesicoureteral reflux, VUR, or stones. The obstruction leads to elevated intrapelvic pressure, dilation of the renal pelvis and calyxes, urinary stasis, and possible loss of the renal parenchyma. Between 10% and 40% of UPJO cases are bilateral. Clinical manifestations Hydronephrosis due to UPJO is often detected on prenatal ultrasound, but a palpable abdominal mass is the most common presentation in newborns. Older children may present with abdominal or flank pain, cyclic vomiting, and hematuria in addition to a mass. Diagnosis Renal ultrasound confirms the presence of a hydronephrotic kidney. A subsequent diuretic nuclear renogram can further characterize the severity of the obstruction and the relative function of the kidneys. Treatment Surgical correction is indicated when a proven obstruction progresses, results in deterioration of function, or causes symptoms. The most common approach to correction of UPJO in children is minimally invasive surgery or open pyloplasty to correct the narrowing between the renal pelvis and the ureter. Vesicoureteral reflux VUR results when the length of the tunnel of the ureter through the bladder submucosa is insufficient to prevent retrograde flow of urine. The condition may be bilateral or unilateral. Clinical manifestations The most frequent presentation is recurrent urinary tract infections, UTIs, though it is important to realize the VUR in itself does not cause infection. Retrograde flow of infected urine can result in pyelonephritis. Like UPJO, VUR can cause fetal hydronephrosis, but it is a much less frequent etiology. Diagnosis A radiographic voiding cystourethrogram, VCUG, detects abnormalities at ureteral insertion sites and permits classification of the grade of reflux based on the extent of retrograde flow and associated dilation of the ureter and pelvis, FIG, 17 to 1. It is the initial study of choice when VUR is suspected due to the ability to obtain superior anatomic detail. 
Higher grades are associated with large, tortuous ureters and marked distortion of the renal pelvis and calyxes. Radionuclide cystography exposes patients to a lower radiation dose and is useful for following reflux. Treatment Antibiotic prophylaxis is the first-line treatment for VUR, as the associated recurrent UTIs and pyelonephritis can lead to progressive renal injury and scarring. Amoxicillin is preferred in infants as less than or equal to three months of age. Older patients can be treated with trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or nitrofurantoin. There is current controversy in the literature regarding the need for antibiotic prophylaxis in patients with low-grade VUR. However, antibiotic prophylaxis is still recommended for all children with grade 2 or greater. VUR, especially infants and small children. Low grades of reflux may resolve spontaneously and preclude the need for further antibiotics. However, surgical correction is indicated when the grade of reflux worsens, multiple antibiotic sensitivities or allergies develop, there is evidence of diminishment of renal function, the patient has recurrent UTIs or pyelonephritis, or noncompliance is an issue. Surgery involves lengthening the intravesicular segment of the tunnel through which the ureter enters the bladder, ureteral reimplantation. An alternative to surgery is injection with bulking agents such as deflux to recreate the tunnel mechanism. Posterior urethral valves Occurring only in males, posterior urethral valves, PUV, consist of obstructing leaflets within the posterior urethra which result in partial to complete bladder outlet obstruction. The increased pressure causes urethral dilation, bladder neck hypertrophy, and bladder trabeculation. VUR occurs with increased frequency and may lead to renal dysplasia. Posterior urethral valves is one of the most common causes of end-stage renal disease in the male child. Clinical manifestations This disorder may be suspected by detecting hydronephrosis and bladder distension on prenatal ultrasound or by palpating a distended bladder or renal mass during the newborn examination. In older infants, parents may note a weak or dribbling urinary stream or unexplained daytime wetting. Occasionally, the condition is diagnosed in boys during radiologic evaluation following a UTI. Diagnostic evaluation Renal ultrasound demonstrates evidence of chronic obstruction of the bladder neck. The bladder will be distended, with thickened walls and possible trabeculation. Bilateral hydronephrosis may be present. Posterior urethral valves are clearly visualized on a radiographic VCUG. Reflux is often present in high grade. The bladder is dilated with possible trabeculations or diverticuli. The bladder neck is hypertrophied and may be visualized separate from the body of the bladder. The posterior urethra is also very dilated and may be described as shield-shaped or having a spinnaker sail appearance. Treatment First-line treatment involves ablation of the obstructing valve leaflets and, if VUR is present, antibiotic prophylaxis. Sometimes intermittent catheterization or temporary diversion of urine with a vesicostomy is necessary. When VUR is secondary to PUV, resolution of reflux is roughly equal for all grades with adequate bladder management. Early surgical correction of the reflux is discouraged, as the bladder pathophysiology can change over time and early surgery has a high failure rate. Prognosis is related to the degree of renal and bladder impairment at the time of PUV ablation. However, nearly all males will need to be followed long-term due to increased risk of development of chronic kidney disease. Hypospadias Hypospadias is the most common congenital anomaly of the penis, occurring in 1 in 250 male newborns. Incomplete development of the distal urethra leads to malposition of the urethral meatus along the ventral side of the penis toward the perineum. The ventral foreskin is usually deficient, and there may be an associated curvature of the penis known as cordy. Circumcision is contraindicated because surgical repair may require the prepucial tissue. 
The aims of therapy are to extend the urethral meatus to the tip of the gland's penis, create a straight erection, and produce the appearance of a normal circumcised phallus. Prognosis is excellent for distal hypospadias. Proximal hypospadias may require a staged surgical approach in order to achieve an acceptable cosmetic and functional result. The association of hypospadias with any degree of testicular cryptorchidism should prompt an ambiguous genitalia workup, including genetic karyotyping. Cryptorchidism Cryptorchidism is defined as testes that have not fully descended into the scrotum and, unlike retractile testes, cannot be manipulated into the scrotum with gentle pressure. Isolated cryptorchidism is common at birth, occurring in roughly 3% of term male newborns. Preterm infants have a higher incidence of undescended testes, although this may be related more to low birth weight than gestational age. Testes that remain outside the scrotum may develop impaired sperm and hormone production, with both the undescended and the contralateral descended testes at increased risk for malignancy. Bilateral cryptorchidism can result in oligospermia and infertility. Clinical manifestations One or both testes may be positioned in the abdomen or anywhere along the inguinal canal. Most are palpable on examination. 90% of patients also have inguinal hernias. Treatment By 12 months of age, 99% of males have bilateral descended testicles, but spontaneous descent after age 3 months is unlikely. Surgical repair, orchiopexy, takes place at 6 to 12 months of age and has a high success rate, 99%. Orchiopexy does not appear to alter the incidence of malignant degeneration, 2% to 3%, but it does render the testis accessible for regular self-examination. Testicular torsion Testicular torsion is a surgical emergency, requiring prompt recognition and correction to prevent loss of the testicle. Most patients with testicular torsion lack the posterior attachment to the tunica vaginalis that keeps the testis from rotating around the spermatic cord. This creates a mobile testis and results in a bell clapper deformity, the ability of the untethered testis to twist on its stalk. Clinical manifestations Testicular torsion is a clinical diagnosis with a hallmark presentation of acute onset of unilateral scrotal pain typically sufficient to wake the child from sleep. Nausea and vomiting are common. Right-sided torsion sometimes is confused with appendicitis, necessitating examination of the external genitalia in males with abdominal pain. In torsion, the scrotum often appears swollen and erythematous, while the testis is exquisitely tender. Epididymitis, which is more common during adolescence, presents with a similar clinical picture. Epididymitis may be infectious or secondary to torsion of a testicular or epididymal appendix. Diagnosis The cremasteric reflex is typically absent in testicular torsion. The presence of the blue dot sign on the upper aspect of the scrotum and a normal cremasteric reflex suggest torsion of the appendix testes rather than the entire testicle. Doppler ultrasound of the scrotum is helpful in differentiating between epididymitis and testicular torsion but may delay appropriate treatment. The diagnosis of torsion is a clinical diagnosis. Ultrasound is a helpful tool but should not delay prompt surgical exploration and correction if the index of suspicion for torsion is high. Treatment Early surgical detorsion is critical and should ideally take place within six hours of the onset of pain. If the testis is manually detorsed in the emergency room, ultrasound confirmation of detorsion and surgical exploration should be performed during the admission. Necrotic testes must be removed, and the contralateral testis is fixed to the fibrous layer of the posterior scrotal envelope during surgery to prevent asynchronous torsion. Torsion of a testicular or epididymal appendix resolves spontaneously. Epididymitis is often treated with antibiotics. Hydrocelas and varicoceles Hydrocelas are fluid-filled sacs in the scrotal cavity consisting of remnants of the processus vaginalis. 
They are often diagnosed in the newborn period or early childhood. Hydrocelas communicate with the peritoneal cavity through a patent processus and are at risk for incarceration. These communicating hydrocelas and hernias should be repaired as soon as possible to prevent the development of an incarcerated hernia. Most non-communicating or simple hydrocelas involute by 12 months of age. A varicocele is defined as dilation of the testicular veins and enlargement of the pampiniform plexus. Varicoceles become detectable in boys during adolescence, occur more commonly on the left, and are usually non-tender. They are generally not visible when the patient is supine, but become evident upon standing when the veins distend and produce the characteristic bag of worms within the scrotum. Indications for surgical repair include pain, progressive enlargement, and discordant testicular growth. Unrepaired varicoceles may place the patient at an increased risk for infertility. Urinary tract infection, UTI, bacterial UTIs may be limited to the bladder, cystitis, or may also involve the kidney, pyelonephritis. Children with pyelonephritis can sustain damage to the infected area of the renal parenchyma, resulting in localized scarring, decreased function, and hypertension. Common pathogens include Escherichia coli, 80%, Proteus, and Klebsiella species. Risk factors The most significant risk factor is the presence of an anatomic or physiologic urinary tract abnormality that predisposes to stasis of urine, such as bladder outlet obstruction, vesicoureteral reflux, and dysfunctional voiding. These risk factors may be known from prenatal evaluations or may first become evident with a UTI. Thus, a history of previous UTI is also a significant risk factor. After the first year of life, equal incidence, girls have almost a tenfold increased incidence over boys. Although uncircumcised male infants are more prone to UTIs, this risk diminishes after the first year of life and is not a sufficient indication for universal routine circumcision. Differential diagnosis the differential diagnosis for cystitis includes external genital irritation, medial stenosis in the circumcised male, vulvovaginitis, vaginal foreign body, sexual abuse, and pinworm infestation. Adenovirus can cause a self-limited hemorrhagic cystitis that does not respond to antibiotics but may be mistaken for a UTI. In the adolescent, the possibility of a sexually transmitted disease must be entertained. Posterior urethralgia is a benign, self-limiting inflammation of the posterior urethra in boys which may mimic a UTI. For the febrile child, lower lobe pneumonia often presents with fever, chills, and flank pain, a reminder that other sources of infection must also be contemplated. Urolithiasis should be considered in the patient presenting with dysuria, hematuria, and flank pain. Clinical manifestations In febrile infants, the urinary tract is the most common site of bacterial infection. Fever may be the only manifestation of illness. However, infants may also present with other signs of systemic illness, such as lethargy, vital sign instability, poor oral intake, mottled appearance, and even jaundice. The source of infection is almost always hematogenous seeding of the kidneys, which explains the high rate of renal scarring observed in this group of patients. Also, AUTI can be the first clinical suggestion of an obstructive anomaly or vesicoureteral reflux in this age group. Ideally, the urine should be examined in all febrile patients younger than 1 to 2 years. In older children, UTIs more often result from ascent of exterior fecal flora into the urinary tract. The signs and symptoms of cystitis are similar to those in adults and include low-grade fever, frequency, urgency, dysuria, incontinence, abdominal pain, and hematuria. In contrast, pyelonephritis presents with high fever, chills, nausea, vomiting, and flank pain. Older children are more likely to have an isolated infection of the bladder, 
Upper tract involvement is suggested by elevation of the peripheral white blood count, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, and C-reactive protein. Diagnostic evaluation. A positive urine culture is the gold standard for diagnosis, although urine microscopy or dipstick findings may suggest a UTI. The presence of nitrites on urine dipstick findings has a high specificity but a relatively low sensitivity for bacterial infection, as not all bacteria produce nitrites. The absence of leukocyte esterase has a fairly high sensitivity. Additionally, urine microscopy findings of both pyuria and bacteriuria are fairly specific for infection. However, the absence of these findings in the urine of a high-risk patient, such as a febrile or ill-appearing infant, does not rule out UTI. For instance, pyuria is often absent in infants with pyelonephritis. Urine may be obtained by suprapubic tap, in neonates, sterile catheterization of the bladder, or clean catch incontinent children. These are listed in their order of increasing likelihood of contamination. Bagged specimens are inadequate for evaluation of UTIs. A urine culture results in 24 to 48 hours, and dipstick urinalysis should be obtained in all febrile infants without a definitive source of infection, and older patients with suspected UTIs. Patients with positive dipstick results for leukocyte esterase, with or without positive nitrites, should be treated for a presumed UTI until culture results are available. Susceptibility testing is performed on any singular bacteria isolated to ensure appropriate antibiotic treatment. The workup of initial confirmed UTIs in children is controversial and depends on the patient's age, severity of infection, and response to treatment. Figure 17-2 provides a suggested diagnostic algorithm for children with UTIs. Current American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines recommend that all children younger than 24 months undergo renal ultrasound to rule out hydronephrosis or structural lesions that predispose to infection. Those with hydronephrosis and those with normal ultrasound who do not respond to appropriate antibiotic therapy within 48 hours should also receive a VCUG. In prompt responders with normal ultrasounds, the VCUG is not mandatory. Other experts argue that all infected children younger than a certain age, 6 to 12 months, receive a VCUG regardless of response to treatment. It is likely that further studies will result in more evidence-based recommendations. In cases of suspected pyelonephritis, a nuclear imaging study such as a DMSA is helpful to document areas of injury and possible scar formation. Treatment children with suspected cystitis should be treated with an appropriate oral antibiotic such as amoxicillin, ampicillin, nitrofurantoin, or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. If the culture is negative, antibiotics may be discontinued. A positive urine culture should prompt a 5-7 to day course with an appropriate oral antibiotic, based on sensitivity results. Non-toxic appearing children with suspected pyelonephritis should be treated with an oral cephalosporin or intravenous ampicillin plus gentamicin or a cephalosporin until culture results are available. Patients who are toxic appearing, unable to tolerate oral medications, or younger than 6 months must be admitted to the hospital for intravenous antibiotics and observation. Patients older than 6 months may be discharged on a culture-specific oral antibiotic to finish the course of therapy provided their clinical picture improves. Large defects on DMSA scans suggestive of severe pyelonephritis may benefit from a full course of intravenous antibiotics. The prognosis for patients with isolated cystitis is excellent. Morbidity increases with recurrent infection. Most UTI-related complications are the result of pyelonephritis, including perinephric abscesses, renal scarring, and renal failure. Nephrotic syndrome Nephrotic syndrome is a glomerular disorder characterized by marked proteinuria, hypoalbuminemia, hyperlipidemia, and edema. Its etiology may be idiopathic, primary, or secondary. Table 17 to 1, 
with most cases, greater than 90%, in children from industrialized nations being idiopathic. Minimal change disease, MCD, is by far the most common cause of primary nephrotic of idiopathic cases of pediatric nephrotic syndrome in children, accounting for more than 80% of all cases. Typical patients present between 2 and 6 years of age, with boys outnumbering girls 2 to 1. Focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, FSGS, membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis, MPGN, and membranous nephropathy, MN, account for the remainder of idiopathic cases of pediatric nephrotic syndrome. These are typically encountered in older age groups. Clinical manifestations Patients with early nephrotic syndrome appear quite well, with a fairly insidious onset of symptoms. There may be a history of nonspecific illness a few weeks prior to the associated findings. Periorbital edema is commonly the first abnormality noted. Occasionally patients are treated for allergies because of their mild initial presentations. This is followed by dependent, lower extremity, edema, weight gain, and generalized edema, ascites, perinealedema. Anorexia and diarrhea are variably present, often from intestinal edema. Gross hematuria and hypertension are typically absent. These should raise suspicion of FSGS, secondary etiologies, or glomerulonephritis. Diagnostic evaluation The hallmark of nephrotic syndrome is marked proteinuria. Nephrotic range proteinuria is usually defined as proteinuria exceeding 1000 mg per meter 2 per day or a spot. Random, urinary protein creatinine ratio exceeding 2.0 mg per milligram. The proteinuria in childhood nephrotic syndrome is relatively selective, consisting primarily of albumin, with resultant hypoalbuminemia. Increase in creatinine, decreased intravascular oncotic pressure leading to renal hypoperfusion. In the patient complaining of abdominal pain, a thorough examination for signs of peritoneal involvement is necessary, especially if fever is present. Renal biopsy is indicated for patients outside the typical age range for MCD, those with significant renal insufficiency or casts in their urine, and those who do not respond to steroids. Gross sections in MCD show few if any abnormalities, hence the name, with the only consistent finding being effacement of epithelial foot processes demonstrated by electron microscopy. FSGS is characterized by mesangial hypertrophy of focal sections of the glomeruli, fibrosis, and varying degrees of tubular atrophy. Increased mesangial cellularity and glomerular basement membrane thickening are found in diffuse MPGN. MN is characterized by diffuse thickening of the capillary walls due to deposit formation. Differential diagnosis Generalized edema may be present in hepatic, nutritional, cardiac, and other renal disorders. If the patient is edematous without low serum albumin, then conditions with fluid and salt overload, heart failure, renal failure, cirrhosis, should be considered. If hypoalbuminemia is present without proteinuria, then intestinal losses of protein or hepatic failure may be more likely. Other conditions associated with proteinuria include exercise, trauma, UTI, dehydration, and acute tubular necrosis. However, none of these causes the degree of protein loss seen in nephrotic syndrome. Treatment If the clinical presentation is consistent with uncomplicated primary nephrotic syndrome, strict dietary salt restriction and oral steroid therapy are appropriate. Steroids result in prompt remission in most cases of MCD, often within four weeks. Nephrotic syndrome that does not respond to oral steroids may require treatment with stronger immunosuppressants, such as cyclophosphamide or calcineurin inhibitors. If symptoms do not resolve within 8 to 12 weeks, or if the patient experiences frequent or severe relapses while on steroids, renal biopsy is indicated to confirm the diagnosis and identify the histologic subtype. Intravenous albumin, followed by a diuretic, 
assists in inducing temporary diuresis in the presence of incapacitating anisarca or edema-related respiratory compromise. Albumin without diuretics would be indicated in patients presenting with hypotensive shock. Rapid expansion with colloid is needed in these patients because of their low intravascular oncotic pressures. Complications Bacterial infections, particularly spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, are frequent complications of nephrotic syndrome. Patients in relapse are at particular risk of infection from encapsulated organisms, especially pneumococcus, because of loss of proteins that aid in phagocytosis of the capsule. The use of antibiotic prophylaxis during periods of relapse is debatable and not proven to be cost-effective. Other serious complications include thromboembolic events, from the loss of antithrombotic proteins in the urine, persistent hyperlipidemia, and steroid toxicities, poor growth, hypertension, Cushingoid appearance. Prognosis The prognosis of MCD is excellent. Although up to 80% of patients relapse at least once, often triggered by illness, very few develop any long-standing renal insufficiency. Those who do are often unresponsive to steroid therapy. Unfortunately, this includes most patients with focal segmental glomerulosclerosis and diffuse membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis, in whom end-stage renal disease is common. Glomerulonephritis The term glomerulonephritis implies inflammation within the glomerulus. Antigen-antibody complexes form or deposit in the subepithelial or subendothelial areas of glomeruli, followed by immune mediators and inflammatory injury. The major glomerulonephritic syndromes of childhood are listed in Table 17-2 with their distinguishing characteristics discussed in the following section. Clinical manifestations The initial presentation of glomerulonephritis typically includes hematuria, overt or microscopic, proteinuria, azotemia, oliguria, edema, and hypertension, findings also referred to as nephritic syndrome. Red cell casts are invariably present. In fact, the urine is often described as tea-colored by parents. Proteinuria is present, but is usually much less prominent than in nephrotic syndrome. Glomerular filtration is compromised by the inflammation, leading to salt and water retention and circulatory overload, manifested by edema and hypertension. Decreased filtration leads to increasing serum bun and creatinine levels along with temporary sodium and potassium dysregulation. Patients may complain of malaise, likely from decreased clearance of acid and uremic waste products, and fatigue, from fluid retention. Also, acute inflammation of the kidneys may cause them to swell, resulting in flank pain from the stretching of the renal capsule in some patients. Diagnostic evaluation As there are several different glomerulonephritides, each with its own distinctive features, the initial evaluation should first focus on determining whether nephritis is present or not. The differential diagnosis of hematuria, the most prominent manifestation of glomerulonephritis, includes other conditions, infection, trauma, stones, cystic disease, and hematologic disorders. Important laboratory studies include urinalysis, possibly with urine culture, urine microscopy, serum electrolytes with bun and creatinine, complete blood count, CBC, and coagulation studies. The first step of the evaluation is confirmation of blood in the urine by microscopy. Both hemoglobin and myoglobin test positive for blood on urine dipstick. However, there are no red blood cells on microscopic urine examination in the presence of myoglobinuria. The presence of red blood cell casts on urine microscopy confirms the diagnosis of a glomerulonephritis. If glomerulonephritis is confirmed, the first test should be evaluation of serum complement levels. A low level of complement C3 is typical of acute post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, whereas a persistently decreased level of C3, and possibly C4, is highly suggestive of lupus or MPGN. 
Other tests that may assist if the patient is hypocomplementemic include an anti-streptolysin O, ASO, titer, anti-DNA-B titer, anti-nuclear antibody, ANA, and anti-double-stranded DNA antibody. If the patient is normocomplementemic, an anti-nuclear cytoplasmic antibody, ANCA, may assist in detecting certain immune glomerulonephritides. However, many of the nephritides are best diagnosed through a thorough history and physical examination along with a diagnostic renal biopsy. As each of these nephritides are diagnosed and treated differently, they are hereafter discussed separately. Acute post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, APGN, the most common glomerulonephritis in childhood, occurs sporadically in early school-age children and is twice as common in males. Streptococcal infections involving either the throat, pharyngitis, or skin, impetigo, precede the clinical syndrome by one to four weeks. Although treating the streptococcal illness does not prevent APGN, obtaining a recent history of infection is important. Elevated anti-streptolysin O or anti-DNA-B titers suggest recent infection. The C3 component of the complement pathway is low and typically recovers in six to eight weeks following the onset of nephritis. Biopsies are not usually performed, as the renal involvement is typically transient, with complete recovery in a majority of patients. Hypertension and edema are often the most significant sequelae and may be controlled through salt and fluid restriction, diuretics, and vasodilators. Membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis, MPGN, is an uncommon disorder that has no typical features outside of nephritis. It is diagnosed by renal biopsy and should be suspected in older patients with persistently low C3 levels after 6 to 8 weeks. It is treated by high-dose steroids or other immunosuppressants with variable success, often progressing to end-stage renal disease. Glomerulonephritis associated with systemic lupus erythematosus is associated with decreased C3 and C4 levels. SLE is further discussed in Chapter 13. henix shanlin purpura, HSP, can present acutely with glomerulonephritis, often following symptoms of infection which are thought to be a trigger of the disorder. It is a systemic vasculitis characterized by a purpuric rash often involving the lower extremities and buttocks, crampy abdominal pain, and arthritis. The C3 levels remain normal. About 50% of patients may have an elevated IgA level, though this is not diagnostic of the disorder. Patients may be treated with steroids for severe arthritic or abdominal pain, though this does not necessarily alter the course of the nephritis. Most children with HSP nephritis recover without intervention, but those with greater renal involvement, characterized by significant proteinuria, hypertension, or elevation of creatinine, may require prolonged courses of immunosuppressants such as steroids, calcineurin inhibitors, and Antimetabolites. 2% of children with HSP develop long-term renal impairment. IgA nephropathy is the most common glomerulonephritis worldwide, with an increased prevalence in Pan-Pacific Asian countries. Once thought to be a benign condition, it is now known to slowly progress to renal failure in 25% of cases. Most patients present with either asymptomatic gross hematuria occurring a few days after an upper respiratory or gastrointestinal infection or with persistent microscopic hematuria. However, some patients may present with fulminant nephritis. C3 levels are normal. The only method of confirmation is renal biopsy, which demonstrates mesangial deposits of IgA in the glomeruli. Treatment varies from potent immunosuppression, in those with rapid progression of disease or severe proteinuria, antiproteinuric agents and antioxidants, in moderate disease, to no therapy in the majority of mild cases. Rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis is the description given to a number of acute glomerulopathies that, for unknown reasons, deteriorate over a few weeks or months to renal failure and even death. 
Many of these disorders are also systemic vasculitides and may have pulmonary involvement as well. Some of the Pashi immune glomerulonephritides have positive anti-nuclear cytoplasmic antibodies, ANCA, or antibodies against the glomerular basement membrane. All forms demonstrate generalized crescent formation in the glomeruli, thought to represent cellular destruction by macrophages with subsequent necrosis and fibrin deposition. Fortunately, rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis is rare in children. When present, it must be treated immediately with strong immunosuppressants or freesis. Alport syndrome, or hereditary nephritis, is caused by mutations in the gene encoding type 4 collagen that result in an abnormal glomerular basement membrane. Inheritance is X-linked in the classic form of the disorder, although defective genes encoding other glomerular basement membrane components can cause similar disease. Because type 4 collagen is an important component of the cochlea, Alport syndrome is associated with sensory neural hearing loss. A family history of renal failure or hearing loss, especially in males, should raise suspicion for the disease. The diagnosis is usually confirmed through renal biopsy, which reveals a characteristic splitting of the basement membranes, although early high-frequency hearing loss and ophthalmologic features of the disease can also assist in diagnosis. Patients inevitably progress to end-stage renal disease over time, as there is little to be done to prevent progression. Significant progression of renal disease typically occurs toward the end of the second decade in most men and is often mirrored by the degree of hearing loss. Benign familial hematuria, or thin membrane disease, is a common cause of asymptomatic microscopic and occasionally gross hematuria. Renal function is normal, and biopsy, although unnecessary, reveals diffuse thinning of the glomerular basement membrane on electron microscopy. Because transmission is autosomal dominant, asymptomatic microscopic hematuria is usually found in other family members. Hemolytic uremic syndrome Hemolytic uremic syndrome, HUS, is technically not a glomerulonephritis, but presents with a similar nephritic picture. It is caused by endothelial injury of the renal vasculature with subsequent cascade of microthrombi formation and shearing of erythrocytes passing over the thrombi. A majority of cases are caused by a shiga-like toxin produced by an enterohemorrhagic strain of E. coli. O157. H7. Though atypical cases not associated with diarrhea also occur. Clinical manifestations Children with diarrhea-associated HUS often have an exposure to E. coli, either through undercooked meat or an exposure to farm animal feces, via water runoff or foods exposed to manure. Patients present with a prodromal diarrheal illness for 4 to 7 days before the other manifestations of the disorder. Diarrhea is often bloody and associated with significant abdominal pain. This is followed by pallor, jaundice, petechia, and or oliguria. Some patients are noted to be edematous from continued fluid intake with declining urine output, such that they may be hypertensive as well. Diagnostic evaluation HUS is characterized by the classic trio of microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and azotemia. The anemia and thrombocytopenia of the disease can be significant, with hemoglobin levels dropping to. Levels are often very elevated. The blood smear demonstrates the hallmark schistocytes of microangiopathic hemolysis. Coagulation studies should be normal. In patients with diarrhea, a stool culture for E. coli O157. H7 should be obtained to confirm typical HUS as well as for epidemiologic investigation, as this is a reportable disease to local and state health units. If the patient does not have associated diarrhea, an evaluation for atypical HUS should be carried out, as its treatment and prevention is altogether different. Treatment most therapies for HUS are supportive, as there are no current treatments for the cascade of events following endothelial injury. Transfusion with packed red cells is needed in half of all patients, generally provided if the serum hemoglobin is all forms of renal tubular acidosis, RTA, 
are characterized by normal anion gap hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, resulting from insufficient renal transport of bicarbonate or acids. The tubules are the site of reabsorption and secretion. Most bicarbonate filtered from the plasma is reabsorbed in the proximal tubule, along with amino acids, glucose, sodium, potassium, calcium, phosphate, and water. In the distal tubule, the remainder of the bicarbonate is reabsorbed and hydrogen ions are secreted into the tubular lumen. Defects in either transport site compromise the kidney's ability to maintain pH homeostasis. Clinical manifestations Patients with RTA typically present with failure to thrive during their infant or toddler years, though they may be older if the disorder was acquired later in life. This stems from their chronic acidotic state, which may also be associated with vomiting and anorexia. Polydipsia and polyuria with volume contraction may also be seen, especially in proximal RTA. Other presenting signs and symptoms may include findings of rickets or kidney stones. Diagnostic evaluation Any patient with non-GAP metabolic acidosis of unclear etiology warrants further workup to rule out RTA, FIG, 17-3. Patients with bicarbonate losses in the stool, primarily from diarrhea but also with other fistula drainage, may also present with hyperchloremic acidosis. Hypokalemia is seen in both distal, type 1, and proximal, type 2, RTA, while the hyperkalemia of type 4 RTA is secondary to a lack of aldosterone responsiveness in the collecting tubule. Urine pH is typically elevated in distal and proximal RTA, however, it may drop below 6 with proximal RTA if the patient is acidotic enough. Another way to discern between these two is by calculating a urine anion gap, urine Na plus K minus Cl. If the urine anion gap is positive, then ammonia production is likely impaired, as seen with a distal RTA. Renal ultrasound may reveal nephrocalcinosis with distal RTA. Most patients with proximal, type 2, RTA have it in conjunction with Fanconi syndrome, a generalized disorder of proximal tubule transport. Urinalysis may reveal mild glucosuria and proteinuria, while urine concentrations of potassium and phosphorus are elevated. Additionally, Fanconi syndrome has been associated with other disorders, including cystinosis, Wilson disease, and Low syndrome. Treatment Treatment consists of providing children with sufficient amounts of an alkalinizing agent, bicarbonate or citrate, to correct the acidosis completely and restore normal growth. Thiazide diuretics may be administered in proximal RTA to increase proximal tubular reabsorption of bicarbonate. Hypokalemia is treated concurrently when the alkali is coupled with potassium as a salt. If RTA is associated with an underlying condition, the primary disorder must be addressed. Nephrogenic diabetes insipidus diabetes insipidus, D, is a disorder in renal concentrating ability, secondary to a lack of efficacy of arginine vasopressin, antidiuretic hormone, on aquaporin-mediated transport of water in the renal collecting duct. It may be central or nephrogenic in origin. In central D, the production or release of hormone is insufficient, see Chapter 14. Nephrogenic D, NDI, arises from end-organ resistance to the hormone, either from a receptor defect or from other processes that interfere with receptor action. Nephrogenic D may be congenital, with 90% of cases being X-linked, or acquired. Acquired NDI has been associated with polycystic kidney disease, pyelonephritis, lithium toxicity, and sickle cell disease. Clinical manifestations Patients with NDI produce large amounts of very dilute urine regardless of their hydration status. This polyuria necessitates excessive water intake, polydipsia, to compensate for these losses. Congenital NDI typically manifests in the first weeks of life with hypernatremic dehydration, as such infants are unable to maintain sufficient fluid intake. 
Other features may include intermittent fever, irritability, vomiting, and poor growth. Interestingly, associated pregnancies are not associated with polyhydromnios, as the mechanisms affecting urine concentration do not develop until after delivery. Developmental delay may occur as a result of frequent hypernatremic seizures. Some patients may not manifest symptoms until they are stressed with illness. Older children may present with polyuria, nocturnal enuresis, or significant nocturia, and constipation. Diagnostic evaluation patients with D are unable to concentrate their urine, even with significant dehydration. Urine-specific gravity and osmolarity remain inappropriately low, while serum osmolarity is elevated. A urine osmolality below 500 mosm per kilogram in a dehydrated child should suggest D. In fact, the urine osmolality often is below 200 mosm kilogram. Other causes of polyuria, such as diabetes mellitus and renal salt wasting, can be ruled out by urine dipstick results for glucose, urine electrolytes, and decreased serum sodium levels. Differentiating central D from NDI is not possible based on symptomatology alone, although the former more commonly follows head trauma, meningitis, or is associated with midline cranial anomalies. The DDAVP test can help differentiate central from nephrogenic D, as NDI would not respond to the hormone. Affected patients would continue to have hypoosmolar urine. Water deprivation testing can also be considered to differentiate between D and psychogenic polydipsia, as patients with the former would become hypernatremic over time. Perinatal testing to detect arginine vasopressin receptor gene, AVPR2, mutations is now available. Treatment acute treatment consists of rehydrating the child, replacing ongoing urinary losses, and correcting any electrolyte abnormalities. A low-sodium diet, normal blood pressure rises gradually as a child grows, reaching adult values during adolescence. Hypertension in the pediatric population is defined as blood pressure greater than 95th percentile for age, gender, and height measured on three separate occasions about one week apart. Essential, primary, hypertension is the most common form in adults. Until recently, children were more likely to have secondary hypertension, usually related to renal disease. However, the increase in childhood obesity and high sodium intake of the westernized diet have led to a concurrent rise in pediatric essential hypertension, which is being documented at increasingly earlier ages. Endocrine, vascular, and neurologic conditions may also be associated with increased blood pressure, table 17 to 3. The younger the patient or the higher the blood pressure reading, the more likely the hypertension is secondary in etiology. Clinical manifestations stable or slowly progressive hypertension is unlikely to cause symptoms, therefore, vigilance at health maintenance visits is needed. Family history is often positive for hypertension, stroke, or premature heart disease. Patients with secondary hypertension often come to medical attention for complaints related to their underlying disease, e.g., growth failure, edema. Past medical history, including neonatal history of vascular catheters, recent medication use, and review of systems for urinary tract symptoms provide pertinent information. Severe hypertension or hypertension that has developed over a short period of time can cause headache, dizziness, and vision changes. Hypertensive encephalopathy is characterized by vomiting, ataxia, mental status changes, and seizures. Other symptoms of hypertension may include epistaxis, chest pain, palpitations, and flushing. Diagnostic evaluation. Obtaining an accurate blood pressure reading is essential in the diagnosis of hypertension. The air bladder portion of the cuff should encircle the patient's arm and be wide enough to cover 75% of the upper limb. A cuff that is too small will give a falsely elevated reading. Likewise a cuff that is too large may yield lower pressure readings. 
Also, the patient should be calmly seated for at least 1 to 2 minutes prior to measurement, with the arm kept still and at heart level during the measurement. If this measurement is elevated, then the remainder of the physical examination should focus on evaluating for secondary causes of hypertension. At least once, the blood pressure should be taken in all four extremities to exclude aortic coarctation. Particular attention should be given to the presence of tachycardia, sympathetic stimulation, heart murmur, as seen in coarctation, or gallop, heard with significant fluid overload. Retinal examination should be performed to make sure there is no papilledema to rule out intracranial causes of hypertension, especially in patients complaining of headache. Poor growth, flank pain, a retroperitoneal mass, large bladder, or abdominal bruit suggests a renal or renovascular etiology. Obesity contributes to hypertension in a genetically predisposed patient. Other secondary findings to consider include the appearance of Cushingoid features and the presence of thyromegaly or nodules. The initial laboratory evaluation should include a CBC, serum electrolytes, bun, creatinine, and urinalysis. This is mainly to screen for any evidence of renal disease, such as anemia, elevated creatinine, or proteinuria. The presence of hypernatremia with hypokalemia may be associated with hyperaldosteronism, while hypercalcemia may also cause elevated blood pressure. Ultrasound of the kidneys permits assessment of anatomy, while a Doppler ultrasound may show the renal vasculature but is rarely diagnostic of renal artery stenosis alone. Chest radiograph, electrocardiogram, and echocardiogram to evaluate heart size and function are often indicated, but more to evaluate for the presence of end organ injury than the etiology of the hypertension. Other secondary tests to consider include thyroid function tests, serum renin and aldosterone, serum metanephrines, and urine catecholamines. Treatment The best treatment for essential hypertension is preventive health care. High salt diet, sedentary lifestyle, cigarette use, alcohol or drug abuse, high serum cholesterol levels, and obesity compound the disorder and increase the morbidity and mortality. First-line treatment recommendations include decreasing daily dietary sodium intake, decreased total caloric intake, and increased cardiovascular activities. When these measures fail after three to six months, either from patient non-adherence or non-efficacy, then pharmacologic therapy may be indicated. However, if patients present with symptoms from their hypertension or blood pressure readings greater than 99th percentile, initial use of antihypertensives is warranted. Secondary hypertension responds to treatment of the underlying disorder when possible. Antihypertensives may be necessary in the short term to address the blood pressure elevation associated with the secondary cause. The choice of pharmacologic therapy is varied, with several different classes of agents available in pediatric patients. Diuretics are often effective in patients with salt or fluid overload and may be used with few minor side effects, increased risk of dehydration. Calcium channel blockers are used in all age groups with very little side effects, but may not directly address the etiology of the hypertension. Beta blockers may be used for catecholamine-induced hypertension, but are contraindicated in athletes or patients with asthma. Angiotensin-converting enzyme, ACE, inhibitors are effective first-line agents in children with renal disease, especially for unilateral renal artery stenosis, and in adolescents and athletes because of relatively few side effects and potential long-term benefits, but do require monitoring of renal function. Up-pointing arrow blockers may also be effective for intracranial causes of hypertension. Additional vasodilators are available for pediatric use, but often not as first-line agents. In patients with severe hypertension, rapid decreases in blood pressure compromise organ perfusion. Hypertensive crisis is an emergency and may be treated with sublingual nifedipine, intravenous labetalol, or intravenous drips of nicardipine or nitroprusside. 
hydralazine is also effective, especially in neonates. Close monitoring in the intensive care setting is essential to prevent a rapid drop in blood pressure. Acute kidney injury renal failure is a potentially life-threatening condition. The incidence in children is increasing. Acute renal failure, ARF, consists of an abrupt reduction in renal function, occurring over hours to days, with retention of nitrogenous waste products such as bun and creatinine, azotemia. Recently, the term acute kidney injury, AKI, has been proposed to reflect a complex disorder that occurs in a wide variety of settings with clinical manifestations ranging from a minimal elevation in serum creatinine to anuric failure. The mechanisms of AKI include prerenal, intrinsic, or postrenal injury, table 17 to 4. Prerenal injury is the functional response of a structurally normal kidney to hypoperfusion. This is the most common form, accounting for about 55% of AKI, with hypovolemia as the most common underlying mechanism. The decreasing GFR produces oliguria. Urine output oliguria is one of the more frequently noted findings with AKI, though this may not be a feature of interstitial nephritis or nephrotoxin-induced injury. Edema is usually evident but often insidious in onset, first presenting with poorly fitting clothing or decreased energy levels. Findings of congestive heart failure, respiratory difficulty, diffuse crackles on lung examination, hepatomegaly, are very late findings but require immediate intervention. Other generalized symptoms may be nonspecific and include malaise, fatigue, anorexia, and vomiting. Flank or abdominal pain may be seen with swelling of the kidneys or urinary tract, such as from obstruction. Most cases of Aki are diagnosed in hospitalized patients, so their recent medical histories are known. A history of recent dehydration, shock, cardiac surgery, or previous renal conditions may help clarify the etiology. A complete list of recent medications, including radiocontrast, is also very helpful in diagnosing nephrotaxic medication injury, especially as most injury occurs with cumulative administrations of nephrotaxic drugs. Depending on the etiology, the physical examination may reveal dehydration, cardiovascular instability, and abdominal or suprapubic masses. Other historical and examination findings include those seen in the different glomerulon epratides. Diagnostic evaluation Aki is defined by an acute rise in creatinine, but is also characterized by hyperkalemia, azotemia, and metabolic acidosis. Anemia is variably present. Urinalysis for hematuria, proteinuria, leukocytes, and presence of casts also provides useful information. Red cell casts are typical of acute glomerulonephritis, white cell casts are seen in interstitial nephritis or pyelonephritis, and pigmented coarsely granular casts indicate ATN. Urine and plasma urea nitrogen, creatinine, osmolarity, and sodium can be used to differentiate between prerenal and intrinsic injury, table 17 to 5. Urine culture is indicated if pyelonephritis is suspected. Renal US is the single best non-invasive radiographic test for determining the site of obstruction in postrenal injury, as well as kidney size and shape and renal blood flow. It may also be useful to differentiate between acute and chronic kidney injury, since kidneys are normal or enlarged in Aki and potentially shrunken in chronic kidney disease. Renal nuclear scans can delineate renal perfusion and functional differences. Voiding cystourethrogram and CTs may also be indicated in certain cases as directed by initial imaging studies. Renal biopsy is indicated when the diagnosis remains unclear or the extent of involvement is unknown. Other laboratory tests for the different glomerulonephritides may also be considered. Treatment Major complications of Aki may be metabolic, hyperkalemia, hyponatremia, hypocalcemia, metabolic acidosis with high anion gap, cardiovascular, hypertension, pulmonary edema, arrhythmias, gastrointestinal, gastritis, bleeding, 
neurologic, somnolence, seizures, coma, hematologic, anemia, bleeding, and or infectious, increased susceptibility to infections. These sequelae often need to be treated directly while also addressing the cause of the Aki. Specific treatments for Aki depend on the etiology. Prerenal injury usually responds to prompt and vigorous correction of the renal hypoperfusion, with either intravenous fluid resuscitation or vasopressor use. Postrenal injury often responds to correction of the obstruction, either through placement of a bypassing catheter or surgical correction. Once intrinsic Aki is established, treatment is largely supportive, consisting of appropriate fluid management, careful replacement of insensible water loss and ongoing losses, correction of electrolyte abnormalities, and dialysis, for fluid overload, hyperkalemia, or acidosis that is unresponsive to medical therapies. Medications that undergo renal clearance require dosing adjustments in Aki to avoid toxicity or further worsening of the renal injury. The underlying abnormality must be corrected to achieve optimal resolution and to prevent recurrence. These treatments vary greatly depending on the primary etiology. Examples include immunosuppression, immune-mediated disorders, antibiotics, pyelonephritis, removal of the offending agent, nephrotoxins or interstitial nephritis, and occasionally watchful observation. The prognosis of Aki depends on the underlying etiology, length of impairment, and severity of functional disturbance. Chronic kidney disease Chronic kidney disease, CKD, implies that renal function has dropped below 30% of normal over a longer period of time, typically greater than 3 months. Function at 10% or less than normal is defined as end-stage renal disease, ESRD. The most common causes of CKD in the pediatric population are congenital, most often due to obstructive uropathy, followed by renal dysplasia and other hereditary renal conditions. Some acquired glomerulopathic disorders, such as focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, are also common causes in older children. Clinical manifestations Unlike acute kidney injury, the different etiologies of CKD typically do not produce oliguria except when it results from an acquired disorder or obstruction. Often there may be an issue with renal concentrating ability, as described in renal dysplasia, resulting in polyuria, episodic unexplained dehydration, or salt craving. Other subjective complaints may include anorexia, nausea, malaise, lethargy, and decreased exercise tolerance, all from the gradual accumulation of unfiltered toxins. Growth failure frequently prompts evaluation for renal disease in the outpatient setting. Rickets may also be present. Other initial presentations include isolated, hypertension or anemia. With improvements in prenatal imaging, many abnormalities are noted before delivery. Diagnostic evaluation Patients with CKD demonstrate many of the same laboratory abnormalities seen in Aki, including azotemia, acidosis, sodium imbalance, and hyperkalemia. The diagnostic evaluations, urinalysis, CBC, renal panel, BUN, creatinine, calcium, and phosphorus, are also very similar. Urinalysis may show a low specific gravity if renal concentrating ability has been lost, while proteinuria may also be present. Anemia is usually more pronounced in CKD than Aki, as there is prolonged cessation of erythropoietin production by the kidney combined with iron deficiency from impaired nutritional intake. Chronic hypocalcemia leads to secondary hyperparathyroidism, elevated intact PTH levels, which may present with renal osteodystrophy on skeletal radiographs. Hyperphosphatemia may also be found in earlier stages of CKD. Renal ultrasound may demonstrate changes in renal size, often small, density, often hyperechoic, and loss of corticomedullary differentiation. Treatment 
treatment for CKD includes nutritional, pharmacologic, and additional interventions to address the clinical manifestations of the disorder and hopefully prevent rapid progression. Close monitoring of clinical and laboratory status is required. Progression of CKD is best avoided by controlling any associated hypertension while minimizing proteinuria through use of ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers, ARBs. Protein restriction is controversial, since it lessens azotemia but can also adversely affect growth and development. Sodium and fluid intake may need to be restricted to control hypertension. Antihypertensive medication is often needed with advancing disease. Hyperkalemia is best avoided through dietary potassium restriction or use of potassium-binding resins, like K-exalate. Acidosis may require bicarbonate supplementation. Calcium supplementation and activated vitamin D are used to treat renal osteodystrophy, while phosphate binders and dietary restriction address hyperphosphatemia. Iron supplementation and recombinant erythropoietin address the anemia. Complete catch-up growth is unlikely, even when optimal caloric intake and normalization of metabolic parameters occur growth hormone may also be needed. Children with less than 10% of normal renal function, creatinine greater than 3 to 10 mg per deciliter depending on size, require either dialysis or renal transplant. Peritoneal dialysis, which can be performed at home, is the standard for children requiring long-term dialysis. Infectious complications, like exit site infections or peritonitis, are the most commonly reported problems, but can usually be treated in the outpatient setting. Hemodialysis, performed at specialized pediatric dialysis centers, provides close to 10% of normal renal function but is time-consuming. Hemodialysis-associated mortality is low, but complications of hemodialysis are not uncommon. They include bleeding, from the anticoagulation of the procedure, thrombosis or infection of vascular access, and too rapid or little fluid or electrolyte removal. Acute dehydration may occur with any treatment. Disequilibrium syndrome, which occurs when the serum urea nitrogen level drops too rapidly, resulting in cerebral edema, may be seen, more commonly with initial hemodialysis treatments. Signs and symptoms of disequilibrium syndrome include headache, nausea, vomiting, mental statues changes, seizures, and coma. Renal transplantation is the ultimate therapy for all children with end-stage renal disease, with few absolute contraindications. The donated kidney may come from a related living or deceased donor. Living-related donor transplants historically have better host and graft survival rates, though the differences are narrowing. Children with CKD require complex and time-consuming treatment and, as a consequence, often experience a decrease in quality of life and are predisposed to developmental and social delays. Aneurysis Successful bladder control is typically achieved between 24 and 36 months of age, although many developmentally normal children take significantly longer. Aneurysis is the involuntary loss of urine in a child older than 5 years. It may be nocturnal and or daytime, primary or secondary. Primary anuretics are patients who have never successfully maintained a dry period, whereas secondary anuretics are usually dry for several months before regular wetting recurs. Clinical manifestations. The most important goal is determining whether there is inherent impairment of renal or bladder function causing the aneurysis. The ability to maintain continence for some period of time whether during the day or night or for several weeks to months, such as in secondary aneurysis, is somewhat reassuring of functional normalcy. A careful history of urinary habits is essential and may pinpoint the problem in and of itself. Frequency of urination, urgency, and small volume of voids may assist in determining if the patient has some instability of the bladder. Inquiry about urine withholding symptoms is also essential, as many anuretics know when they need to void but simply ignore these signals and instead will nervously, dance, 
PP dance, or hold themselves, grab the crotch, sit cross-legged, or perform Vincent's curtsy. Parents sometimes witness the patient urinating and may be able to describe the urinary stream, whether strong, weak, deflected, or interrupted. Bowel habits are also essential to know as constipation may contribute to bladder sensitivity, while bowel incontinence may suggest a tendency for fecal and urinary retention, possibly from a neurologic cause. Physical examination should also focus on findings of secondary causes of enuresis including developmental delay, obstruction, or neurologic impairment. Thorough examination should include the abdomen, masses, palpable bladder, genitalia, urethral abnormalities, anus, tone, signs of constipation, and spine, hair tufts, dimples. Diagnostic evaluation. Urinalysis, electrolytes, and osmolarity can be considered to rule out renal concentrating defects or cystitis. An abdominal radiograph to look for constipation may be considered. Sonography of the kidneys and bladder will evaluate for potential obstruction. Treatment. For most patients with enuresis, improvement occurs with behavioral modification and elimination of factors that increase bladder sensitivity. Regular timed voiding may help avoid prolonged bladder holding, especially in young children. Treatment of constipation, if present, decreases any extrinsic pressure on the bladder. Avoidance of carbonated, caffeinated, chocolate, and citrus food items may also help to desensitize the bladder. Occasionally, patients require anticholinergic medication to help decrease their bladder detrusor instability. Primary nocturnal enuresis is thought to be caused by delayed maturational control or inadequate levels of antidiuretic hormone secretion during sleep. Behavior modification programs are moderately effective. The most popular method of treatment is a nighttime audio alarm that sounds as soon as the child starts to urinate eventually conditioning controlled bladder emptying before enuresis. Intranasal desmopressin acetate, generic name for DDAVP, analogous to endogenous vasopressin, acts to concentrate the urine. If given in the evening, less urine is produced overnight, decreasing the likelihood of wetting. Given the potential for central nervous system side effects, DDAVP is limited to situational use in this population, e.g., in conjunction with a sleepover or during overnight camp. With any of the above therapies, the cure rate is 15% per year after 5 years of age. Children who remain enuretic past 8 years of age have a 10% risk of never resolving their condition. Key points Infants with bilateral renal agenesis develop potter sequence, clubbed feet, cranial anomalies, and typically are stillborn or die shortly after birth due to associated pulmonary hypoplasia. Ureteropelvic junction obstruction, UPJO, is the most common cause of hydronephrosis in childhood. The most common presentation of VUR is recurrent UTIs. Posterior urethral valves is one of the most common causes of end-stage renal disease in the male child. PUV may be suspected by detecting hydronephrosis and bladder distension on prenatal ultrasound or by palpating a distended bladder or renal mass during the newborn examination. Circumcision is contraindicated in infant males with hypospadias because surgical repair may require the prepucial tissue. Orchiopexy, surgical repair of cryptorchidism does not appear to alter the incidence of malignant degeneration, but it does render the testis accessible for regular self-examination. Testicular torsion is a surgical emergency, requiring prompt recognition and correction to prevent loss of the testicle. The diagnosis of torsion is a clinical diagnosis. Ultrasound is a helpful tool but should not delay prompt surgical exploration and correction if the index of suspicion for torsion is high. Hydrocelas are fluid-filled sacs in the scrotal cavity consisting of Remnants of the processus vaginalis, often diagnosed in the newborn period or early childhood. 
Communicating hydrocelas and hernias should be repaired as soon as possible to prevent the development of an incarcerated hernia. Most non-communicating or simple hydrocelas involute by 12 months of age. Varicoceles, defined as dilation of the testicular veins and enlargement of the pampiniform plexus, become detectable in boys during adolescence, occur more commonly on the left, are usually non-tender, and become evident upon standing when the veins distend and produce the characteristic bag of worms within the scrotum. Urinary tract infections, UTIs, are the most common bacterial infections in febrile infants. The most significant risk factor for recurrent UTIs is the presence of a urinary tract abnormality that causes urinary stasis, obstruction, reflux, or dysfunctional voiding. Nephrotic syndrome is characterized by severe proteinuria, hypoalbuminemia, hyperlipidemia, and edema. Minimal change disease is the most common type of pediatric idiopathic nephrotic syndrome. It typically responds to high-dose steroids within four weeks. Glomerulonephritides are characterized by hematuria, azotemia, oliguria, edema, and hypertension. The presence of red cell casts on urine microscopy is potanomonic for glomerulonephritis. Acute post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis is the most common glomerulonephritis in children. Its prognosis is excellent, with normalization of C3 levels in 6 to 8 weeks and resolution of clinical manifestations in 90% of cases. henix shanlin purpura, HSP, is a systemic vasculitis characterized by a purpuric rash often involving the lower extremities and buttocks, crampy abdominal pain, and arthritis. About 50% of patients may have an elevated IgA level, though this is not diagnostic of the disorder. C3 levels remain normal. Alport syndrome is a form of hereditary nephritis associated with sensory neural hearing loss. Hemolytic uremic syndrome, HUS, is characterized by the classic trio of microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and azotemia. A majority of cases are caused by a Shiga-like toxin produced by an enterohemorrhagic strain of E. coli, O157, H7. Renal tubular acidosis, RTA, is characterized by hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis with a normal plasma anion gap. The most common type in children is distal RTA type 4 with hyperkalemia, from hypoaldosteronism or pseudohypoaldosteronism, often seen with obstruction of the urinary tract. Diabetes insipidus, D, is a disorder of urine concentration and can be central or nephrogenic. Clinical manifestations include polyuria, polydipsia, and growth retardation. Therapy for nephrogenic D includes a low-sodium diet, thiazide diuretics, and indomethacin. Blood pressure norms for children are related to age, gender, and height. Three blood pressure readings on separate occasions that are greater than the 95th percentile for age, height, and gender constitute hypertension. The younger the hypertensive child and the higher the blood pressure, the more likely that the etiology of the hypertension is secondary. The causes of acute kidney injury include prerenal, 55%, intrarenal, 40%, or postrenal, 5%. Laboratory findings include increasing levels of bun and creatinine, hyperkalemia, and metabolic acidosis. The most common causes of chronic kidney disease in the pediatric population are congenital, most often due to obstructive uropathy, followed by renal dysplasia and other hereditary renal conditions. Function at 10% or less than normal is defined as end-stage renal disease, ESRD. Patients with primary enuresis are patients who have never successfully maintained a dry period, whereas those with secondary enuresis are usually dry for several months before regular wetting recurs. Regardless of the therapy employed, the cure rate is 15% per year after 5 years of age. Children who remain anuretic past 8 years of age have a 10% risk of never resolving their condition. Children with growth failure should be screened for renal disease.